Welcome, and thank you for joining us as we listen to the lively messages of Brother Nick Manzi, a down-to-earth pastor who communicates God's truth in understandable and practical terms as you apply the Bible to your own life. Oh, praise God. Reminds me of a story. Uh, It was a Sunday morning, and this guy Frank was off. And he pulled out of his driveway with his two-seater convertible with the roof closed because of the typical rain that happens during his drive. And he was headed for church. But as he turned onto the main road to go towards church, he saw ahead of him three people on the side of the road, but really couldn't make them out because of what's going on with the rain. And they saw, but he did see that they were all huddled up under this one single umbrella next to a bus stop. One was, well, older, older Mrs. Smith. She still insisted on getting to church by herself, even though when it rains, the arthritis kicks up and she didn't want to have to wait on anybody else. The other person was Dr. Black. He was uh, Frank's general practitioner. And not that long ago, Dr. Black diagnosed a rare disease that Frank uh, contracted while he was overseas on a vacation. So Frank virtually owed him his life. And the third person, well, her name was Jane. Frank had a crush on Jane. And for the past six months, since she joined the church, he tried to find a way to be able to ask her out, but never was able to. Well, he had about three seconds now to figure out what he was going to do to be able to help these three folks with his two-seater car. And that three seconds is about all he needed. He went, pulled over. He handed the keys to the doctor, told uh, Mrs. Smith to get in the passenger seat, even helped her in, and he huddled under the umbrella with Jane. <laughs> See, as we're going to see from our story that we're going to read today and, and kind of tap into today with, our, with Ruth and Naomi, uh, and by the way, you can open up your books to Book of Ruth while we're doing that. We're not going to have time to read all the scripture that we're going to go through, um, but I want to encourage you to read that book. But you'll see from that book that God's going to be able to ordain things no matter what. And, you know, when he ordains things, it's a perfect thing. Amen. See, in, in matters of romance, chance and good sense, well, they often go together to bring, up, bring about a happy ending. In fact, in so many areas of life, God's will is brought about by a combination of divine providence and human responsibility. Amen? Do you believe that? See, last week we looked at how Naomi and Ruth returned from Moab, and they, had, they, they did that after a series of disasters that was going on. Remember, there was a famine in the land, uh, and they had no food. People were, and their families were dying, so they decided to go back uh, to Bethlehem. And, and here we go. Uh, they, the, they're coming back, Naomi and Ruth, and they're widowed. They have had no means of support anymore because uh, everybody that they had in their family that was to provide support is, has passed passed on for whatever reason, because of illnesses or uh, just age. And they were destitute. They were bitter. Uh, they were seemingly without hope. You remember that story? See, and if you recall from what we talked about last week for Ruth, it was far, far worse for her than it was for Naomi to be going back there. She was a foreigner and not just any kind of foreigner. She was a detestable foreigner just by being a Moabite, a member of a cursed people. And what's more, she's without a dowry and she's apparently unable to have any children because she was married for 10 years before and never had a child. And if you recall through history, they don't wait very long 
to be able to, to try to have a child. So therefore, her trying to find a new husband, those prospects out there, well, they, they weren't really great, were they? They were pr probably pretty poor at that point. All told, that their future was pretty grim. They had a future of lowliness and a future of poverty. Yet, as we know, the story of Ruth has a happy ending. We know that from reading it. Ruth does find a husband, and Naomi does become a grandmother. And Ruth and Boaz, well, they begin a family. And now they, not just any family, it's a family that will end up becoming a royal dynasty. Includes David and ultimately the Son of God, Jesus Himself. But first, our main actor, Ruth, well, she has to do something about it, doesn't she? So God puts her in the right place. And she just happens to begin to glean in a field owned by her kinsman, Boaz. But divine providence isn't all that's required here. She still has to do her bit. She still has to do her part. See, human responsibility is there just as much, just as well. And if you will, if God puts Boaz at the bus stop, but Ruth has to find her way to be able to get herself under the umbrella. So there's no doubt as you read through the, ch the chapters of Ruth, through this narrative, that the author wants us to be able to understand that everything that happens, God is at work. Do you believe that? In everything that happens, good, bad, indifferent, in everything that happens, God is at work. Naomi sees this clearly from the start. God provided food for the people over and over again. But then she calls herself Mara. She's bitter because what the Lord has done to her. She went away full, but the Lord brought her back empty. And she knows how the world works. Even if in her conclusion it's a little premature, she knows that God is still sovereign in all that happens in this world. But what she doesn't see at this stage is that there is nothing arbitrary about the disaster she's experienced. Ruth, the pagan Moabite, is about to be brought into God's plan and in the most significant of ways by becoming a great-grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus Christ. If anything can be said about this, it can be said that God works in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. Amen? See, there's a lesson here for you and me about the way God brings about His will. There's a lesson that we can learn from this because it appears at first glance that Elimelech's decision to take his family to Moab was a big mistake. Now, certainly, well, we saw from what we read, that was Naomi's conclusion as well. But if he didn't make that mistake, none of this rest of the story may have happened. How many times do we hear Christians expressing the thought that they missed out on God's best because they made a wrong decision in their life? Well, let me tell you something. I made a lot of wrong decisions and I'm still feeling God's best. Amen. A lot of wrong decisions. See, we need to be able to remember that God is not somehow bound by circumstances. 
We need to understand that God is not bound somehow by our poor judgment. At least it's not like you're going to get every decision right in your life. We're not perfect. We're not even going to get some of the major ones right. We're not going to have to settle for God's second best if we fail at that either. We will get his best all the time. But when we say those things that we're getting his second best, then what kind of God are we really talking about here? We're talking about a God that's not all powerful then. See, where in the Bible have human mistakes of judgment ever stopped God from doing what he has planned? God always gets what he wants done. So if you made mistakes in your life, don't let them bind you. Don't let them put you into a corner and never make any more decisions ever again. Confess them and get on with your life. Put it away. Because the Lord says if you confess them, they're no longer. My paraphrase, but you know what I mean there. We need to thank God that he is able to even use our wrong decisions to be able to bring about his purposes. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. We still need to learn from our mistakes. Amen. We need to learn from them so we don't make them the next time. Or maybe we can help the next generation not make those same mistakes that we've made. But further evidence of God's provision in action is found in the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. In verse 1, and says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So our narrator is telling this right at the beginning, very first verse of this chapter, changing the the whole history from, you know, the first chapter was about them leaving Moab and coming back. And now the second chapter starts with them being back. And the first person he tells us about is Boaz. And I think he does that to alert us of the fact that even in the midst of tragedy, God is at work. We know the story, but if we never read this story before, we have to know that God is working here. And in fact, God's been not just working on it for just that part that they were in Moab. He's been working on it for thousands of years before this has happened. See, back in the days of Moses, long before any of this has happened, God made laws to be able to allow the poor to glean in the fields after the harvesters have gotten what they needed out of it. And if you recall, the, 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 the harvesters were only allowed to go through it once, and whatever was left behind wasn't for them anymore. It was for people such as Ruth, Naomi, and such. To be, to be able to get what they can. So that way those who were poor were still able uh, to be able to have food, even though they didn't own any land, to be able to grow crops. They were still, still supposed to have enough grain to be able to live on. So God provided a safeguard for women like Ruth, not just women, but poor men that, could, that was handicapped or whatever couldn't do their own work. He had this safeguard in them to ensure that they were not left destitute without any heirs in case their husband died, in case there's no kinsman redeemer around. He did this for people to make sure that they are secure, that they have an ability to be able to get what they need. You know, I kind of liken it to our food pantry. We don't ask questions, nor should we ask questions. But if somebody needs it, we want to be able to give them food. 
But that's not because Central Baptist wants to give them food. Central Baptist wants to do it because we know God has given us provision to be able to do it. We want to be able to do that. But Ruth is out gleaning, and it turns out that Boaz is, it's in Boaz's field. And again, just by chance, Boaz happens to be able to call in and check on his workmen. And it's something like out of a movie that just happens next. You know, the poor uh, widow who's given up everything is over there trying to care for her mother-in-law. And there's this rich and handsome grazer. And their eyes meet. And the electricity flies. <laughs> he must know who the strange woman is. Then she hurries home at the end of the day to tell Naomi about this wonderful man that she made eyes with. And how he's been so kind to her. And Naomi again sees the hand of the Lord at work. But this time it was for their good. And she says uh, to, about Boaz and uh, to Ruth in chapter 2 verse 20. She says, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. See, Naomi's faith has been tested. Remember, she changed her name to Mara. She's bitter. She's bitter about what's been going on. But now her faith is springing back to life. See, the sky's been dark, but now she sees that patch of blue with the sun shining through the clouds and the rays coming. A sign, perhaps those clouds are passing and the sun's going to shine once more. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? That when you're in that place of destitute, you feel like everything's caving in on you and nothing is going right. And then all of a sudden that glimmer of hope comes and you're clinging onto it like the new sun rays pounding through the sky. But first, the main actors need to do their part. See, God already did his. Now it's up to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz to do theirs. Naomi recognizes what's needed and she understands God's provisions for his people, particularly widows like Ruth. So at the start of chapter 3, she explains it to Ruth and she tells her in verse 3, Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Listen to what Naomi's saying. Spray on your Chanel number five. Put on your best clothes and make sure you catch him unaware. Wait till he's eaten and has a few drinks because the way of man's heart is through his belly. Let him get relaxed and then you can act. Which brings us to Boaz. Now, from what we read from this point of the story, we have somewhat of a clear direction on, on Boaz's character don't we? See, what comes out of his dealings with Ruth in chapter 2 that we read last week, we know that he's a man of principle. He's a righteous man. Even before uh, he appears on the scene, we get a chance to see a little bit of a hint of what Boaz is like. Because the way his workmen treat Ruth is an indication of how their boss treats them. In fact, the the, the, the servant girls are allowed to glean in the field shows that Boaz took God's law seriously. Remember what they were just coming out of. They were just coming out of a famine, weren't they? 
And he made sure that his workers knew that these ladies, these people that were required by God's law to be able to glean, had that chance to do so. But his treatment of Ruth, when he hears how she's been looking after Naomi, makes it even clearer. He wants to be able to reward her for her faithfulness to Naomi. And he gives her the protection of his workers. He offers her food at lunchtime. He even tells his harvesters to leave her some extra stalks uh, of grain to be able to gather, not to stop her, even if she picks some stalks out of the standing sheaves. Now that's an act of a generous man, isn't it? Again, remember how generous this is. Think about if you lost all your money for five years and you were not able to get any food for five years and then all of a sudden you got money, not super rich, but you had money to live on and you're able to get food. That's like taking some money and give it to somebody else. It's hard when you do that, especially after what you just experienced, isn't it? See, that's what God wants us to think about as well. He wants us to think about that nothing of ours is ours. Did you hear what I said there? Nothing of ours is ours. It's all God's. And if we can help somebody with what we have in our possession, well, then we need to because God gave it to us anyway. It wasn't meant to be just for us if we were able to give it to somebody else. That's the way I feel about it. Yes, there's people who take advantage, but that's not our place. Right? They didn't have fences and guards around those fields of the harvesters, of the harvest, did they? They didn't check to see what their background was or check their W-2 form to see how much money they made. They let him do what they needed to do. Let God take care of the rest. But anyway, he, we come to the scene of that threshing floor at this time, and it's midnight, and here's Boaz lying in the dark when he, he stirs and he feels something at his feet, and he rolls over, and there he feels a woman. So what does he do? Well, he found a woman lying in his bed just asking for trouble, And what's his response? Does he take advantage of her? No. He doesn't take advantage of her when he finds out anything about that, uh, finds out that she's there. But when he finds out who she is, he treats her with great respect. That's the way we need to treat our young men. Amen. We need to treat our young men to show them that we need to treat all women with great respect. With great respect. And then in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, Who are you? So she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Well, Boaz understands this and is obviously pleased with the idea of possibly having her as his wife. But he's still a righteous man, isn't he? And he just won't take advantage of Ruth's vulnerability at this point. So, too, he won't assume the place of another because he knows that there's another person that's in line first. See, we find out, and we know the story, but right now he's thinking, he's, he's saying, All right, I know that there's someone who's more closely related to Ruth than I am, so therefore they have the first right of refusal to Ruth, as well as to any property that belonged to Elimelech. Now he completes his kindness to Ruth by telling her to stay with him. 
while it's too dark to walk home by herself. But before it gets too light, he tells her to leave so no shame would fall on her for being with him all through the night. And meanwhile, Boaz, he calls a meeting with the man that's closely related to, to, to Ruth with 10 of the elders uh, to be his witnesses. And he begins to negotiate over the sale of Elimelech's land. And there the kinman says, yeah, I'll buy that land. But then Boaz drops in the fact that the land also comes with Naomi and Ruth. And the implication's clear from the Old Testament law that if he takes the land, he takes Ruth also as his wife. And since she has no children, no heir, he must father her children. That doesn't seem that bad. But what happens is when that firstborn son comes, that firstborn son inherits all the land and possessions that was of Elimelech's. They would stay in their family and not go to that kinsman. Well, this other kinsman decides that he doesn't really like the sound of that, and he changes his mind, so Boaz gets the answer that he wants. Ruth as his wife. They complete the formalities, and Boaz is formally betrothed to, to Ruth, but not before the elders pronounce this blessing on Boaz in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper, Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar broke to, broke, bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And that, of course, is how our story finishes with Boaz and Ruth marrying. And straightaway, God is enabling her to conceive and bear a son. Naomi is full once more. She has a grandson in her lap and the women of Bethlehem are rejoicing with her. The book ends with the family tree of Boaz, recounted from Perez, the son of Judah, all the way down to David, the son of Jesse. See, what we discover in this book, in this tale of two widows, is that faith in God is at the same time passive and active. Faith in God is both at the same time passive and active. See, it's passive in the sense that it depends on God acting it depends on God acting. There are times when faith in God requires us to wait to see what God will do to bring about his purposes. In 2004, I knew I was called to be a pastor of a church, but I was, uh, in, I was at the racetracks. I was a missionary in the racetracks. And you, most of you know that. I was gone many weekends during race season being at the racetracks. That was my mission. But I knew God wanted me as a, as a pastor of a church full time. And it took me, even though I was a youth pastor or assistant to a pastor, it took me till 2015 to become a senior pastor. It was God's timing. I needed to wait and wait for his purposes to be done. Whatever those were. I could, I could you know, think about different things that happen and give you different examples, but that doesn't matter. The point is, I needed to wait from 2004 to 2015 to hear his answer. Now, not everybody has to wait 11 years, by the way. But some of us do. 
And it's hard. It's hard to wait. But Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1.11 that God accomplishes all things according to his counsel and what? Will. He accomplishes all things according to his counsel and his will. But God, I want to do it. I want to do it. Maybe it's not for you to be a senior pastor. Maybe it's something else in your life. And we try to rush things along, especially in this, this uh, drive through world we live in today. But that is where Ruth's faith is shown, first of all. And she refuses to give in to the bitterness of Naomi, but trusts God to look after them, even in the midst of all the turmoil they're about to face. Even in the midst of all the stuff we have to go. I don't know what's going on in your life. That's between you and God. And of course, if you ever want to talk, I'm here for you to talk. But what I'm trying to get at is that I, I empathize or I can maybe even sympathize with you. But the thing is, God is still in control. God is still in control. And maybe in your instance, it's about waiting. It's about learning that next lesson we need to learn to be able to take that next stepping stone to wait on God and see what he has planned for our life. Because faith requires us to trust God. Faith requires us to trust God. But while faith requires us to trust God to act, it also demands an active enterprise initiative. Just imagine how this story would have ended up if Ruth and Naomi had just sat around waiting for God to do something. They'd probably be dead and gone in Moab or even in, in Israel. And if they were, they would have been forgotten long ago. No faith implies acting on, on what you know about God. And Hebrew 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. See, sometimes faith requires us to take risks. It's, it sometimes requires us to take risks. Calculated risks, maybe. Get on your knees and pray and find out what God wants. You have the Holy Spirit. He can, he can help you with that decision if you listen. We have his word to be able to see how it aligns up with his word. So we, can, we have an ability to find out what God wants. But we still have to take that risk sometime. Sometimes that risk is acting on, on when you don't know what's going to happen exactly, but trusting that God will be with us and will fulfill his purposes for us. Another example, back in 2002, I was asked to be a chaplain at the, the racetracks and become a missionary out there. And uh, they gave me the application, and it was a somewhat formal application to be able to see what my educational background is and what my testimony and such like that. And as I, I, I received that, I said, well, I'm not sure about this. And I said, okay, well, I'm putting it in my inbox where I, all my bills go. And it's up on top. And, you know, it starts working its way down as the, the other bills go on top. And after about six months, somehow it ends up on top again. 
So I take it and I read it and I look at it again and I say, well, it says that I'm supposed to have certain character traits like in 1 Timothy 3. And I look at 1 Timothy 3 and I'm like, well, it says I'm supposed to be this and that. And that's not me. That's definitely not me. Oh, no, that's not me either. So I put the, the, the application back and it goes back down in the inbox all the way and covered up with other papers. And about another six, seven months later, it ends up on top. I figured, well, if it came back on top that many times, I'm going to pray about it this time. Notice I didn't say I prayed about it before. So I finally prayed about it, and I knew God was calling me to, to be a missionary at the racetracks. I knew that was my deal there. But what I'm saying is, what if I kept rejecting God? Could I maybe even been a pastor here today? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I don't know. But when God tells us to do something, we must act on those instances that he tells us to do something. You know, the the fulfilling of God's purposes so often depends on that interaction between God's providence and human responsibility. We must wait and listen for God to lead us, but we also have to act when he tells us to go. We have to do both. So that's the, the, the tension in which we need to live between waiting in passivity for God to act and, to be, and being so self-reliant that we neither wait for God nor feel the need for him to act or to walk the narrow path of patience and enterprise. In other words, walk by faith. I don't know about you. I want to walk by faith. I'm not, uh, but probably like you, I, I fail at that sometimes. See, the story of Ruth teaches us about the divine intervention of God in the lives of ordinary people. So the next time you read the story of Ruth, remember Romans 8.28 says, We know that in everything God works for good for, uh, in who, what is that? for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that He works in you for good? Are you called according to his purpose? I know I am. And if you're a Christian, you are too. But understand, this verse doesn't assert that all things are good. This verse doesn't also say that uh, all things work for good for all people. See, there's a promise there. And the great promise is that God will overrule and work even through the tragedies caused by sin's presence in this world. He'll give you that peace that you need when this life is throwing fireballs at you. He wants to do that to be able to accomplish his purposes in the life of those who love him and those who have responded to his call and faith. And those who have responded to his call, well, that consists of the family of God. So the promise of all things working together for good is given to a very specific group, those who respond to him in faith. Those who respond to him in faith. See, the Holy Spirit is there, and if you come on Wednesdays, we'd love to have you come on Wednesdays, learn more about the Holy Spirit. But he, you know if you're coming on Wednesdays, he's there to intercede for us. He's there to intercede for us, not just intercede, but he's there to guide us. 
He's there to be able to guide us through the circumstances that we have going on in our life to be able to have God's work for good happen into our lives, no matter how painful things are in our lives. T.J. Bach wrote this once. He said, the Holy Spirit longs to reveal to you the deeper things of God. He longs to love through you. He longs to work through you. Through the blessed Holy Spirit, you may have strength for every duty, wisdom for every problem, comfort in every sorrow, and joy in his overflowing service. See, God, he can bring good out of suffering. He can bring good out of grief. He could bring good out of disappointment. And he most certainly can bring good out of loss. And if you don't believe me, just look at the cross. Nick Manzi is senior pastor of Central Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. If you want more information about the church, or if you're ready to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, contact Brother Nick at Pastor Nick Central Baptist PSL at gmail.com. God bless you as you go about the rest of your day, and thank you for listening and sharing our podcast.